It wasn't some kind of eclipse. This darkness lasted for three hours. It was a supernatural event. But second, it wasn't caused by Satan. Even though the Bible relates darkness with Satan, even though Satan is the prince of darkness, he never causes literal darkness on the earth throughout the whole narrative of Scripture. You never see him with that much power. But there is one character in the Old Testament that often brings darkness with his presence. Listen to what Genesis fifteen twelve says. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, God's presence brought great darkness. There's similar, similar language found in Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 4.11. It says this, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. There's a similar language to Genesis 15. One of the plagues in Egypt was darkness. Uh, Exodus 10, 21, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. God caused a great darkness for three days. The day of the Lord is described as darkness. Joel 2, 1 says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. Amos 5, 20, is not the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, darkness and not light. And gloom with no brightness in it. Or Amos 8, 9, verse 9. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness in the Old Testament often represents God's judgment on the earth. On the cross, the darkness was caused by God as he poured out his wrath on Jesus. And you know what? The Israelites got it. Look at verse 48 in Luke. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, darkness, and we we learn in Matthew, earthquakes, they returned home beating their breasts. They knew darkness was God's wrath. One commentator said this, God's presence at Calvary is often overlooked. But it's only when God arrived that Calvary became the saving event it was. God's wrath poured out on his son is in fact the major reality of Calvary. That happened in the hours of darkness. God arrived in the darkness at Calvary to unleash judgment. God brought the outer darkness of hell to Jerusalem that day and unleashed it on his son. The full extent of God's wrath against the sins of all that would ever put their faith in him. The darkness was not caused by Satan or the absence of God, but rather by his presence in full judgment, vengeance, and fury. That was Friday. God was there. 
infinite wrath moved by infinite holiness and righteousness released infinite punishment on his son. Listen, the punishment we deserved. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus for us. That's the darkness. And look at verse 45. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died on the cross. Verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Again, the Jews recognized the sign, darkness, earthquakes, the tearing of the curtain. They realized they killed an innocent man. My guess, this is just a guess, but but I'm guessing many of these people were saved at Pentecost in Acts 2. Verse 49 and all his acquaintances, this is his followers, and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus' followers were stunned. They were scared. They were confused. They were thinking, it's not supposed to end this way. And the truth is, it's not. It wasn't. I read this in the devotions Friday, but Kent Hughes writes, and I, I love this quote. He says this, in Math, if Matthew ended in chapter 27, or Mark at chapter 15, or Luke at chapter 23 at the, the death and burial, or John in chapter 19, then this would indeed be the end of the story. Jesus would have just been another failed uh, Mas- or, uh, Messiah pretender who clashed with the Roman empire and paid the ultimate price for his folly right in other words without the resurrection jesus was just a crazy man that thought he was god and got himself killed however each gospel adds an additional chapter that changes everything the story is not yet over and the world is about to be turned upside down new creation is about to break into the midst of old creation and and nothing will ever be the same Without the resurrection, the Passion Week is meaningless. And look at verse 49, because there's an interesting note that Luke puts in here. He says this, And all his acquaintances, his followers, and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They witnessed what happened on Friday. So that's the death of Jesus. God's wrath poured out on Jesus for us. And before I move on, I was asked in an email, if if today would be a message of hope. And I knew we were going to start on Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross. And there's many I know that are struggling, many that may be scared financially or this virus and what's going on in in our culture, but I want you to hear the hope that we find on Friday before we move on. And Romans 8.32, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says this, He, this is God, who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God would pour out his wrath on his son for us, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. That's the death. I want to look at the burial. This is still Friday. The burial. If you would look at verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph 
from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decisions and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So the first time we're introduced to this man, Joseph, he was a Jew, it says a member of the council, that means a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader, meaning he was well-respected in the community. He was probably wealthy. In fact, he was. Matthew 27 says he was a rich man, a good and righteous man, verse 51, who had not consented to their decisions and actions and was looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, when Jesus was on trial uh, Friday morning or Thursday night, Friday morning, in front of the Sanhedrin, Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, did not agree to their decision. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I just want to be clear, this was dangerous, to go ask for the body of Jesus, because Jesus was considered a criminal, a rebel, a revolutionary. Even before his death, Joseph was afraid. Uh, John 19, verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for Uh, for fear of the Jews. In other words, he was a secret disciple because he was afraid. He was afraid of losing everything, losing his respect, his honor, his position, his job, money, friends, his family, even his life. I want you to think about it. He was a religious leader. He knew exactly what was going on. He saw the hatred, and he was afraid, so he kept his belief secret. But after the death of Jesus, everything changed. Mark 15:43 says that Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That word courage in Greek is tolmao, which means to defy the possibility of danger. In other words, he put himself in danger by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus. And he wasn't alone. In fact, John 19:39 says that Nicodemus also was with Joseph. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, this is Nicodemus from John chapter 3 that came to Jesus and asked him about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, you must be born again. This was a Pharisee, another member of the Sanhedrin, most likely Nicodemus, came with Joseph. John chapter 19 says, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot was to publicly show how much Jesus meant to Nicodemus. Verse 53 says this, Then he took it down, that's the body, he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. It's important note that Luke gives us Jesus dies about 3 p.m. Friday. Um, Sabbath, of course, is Saturday, which started for the Jews at sundown Friday. Therefore, it was important to get Jesus' body down off the cross and wrapped and anointed before sundown Friday. And they barely had time to do this. Therefore, any elaborate arrangements, such as perfumes, spices, and ointments, would have to wait till after the Sabbath. They would have to wait till Sunday morning. Look at verse 55. It says this, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Again, these women, 
followed Joseph and wanted to know exactly where Jesus' body was, exactly where the tomb was, so that they could come back Sunday morning and finish the, the burial job. This is important because there's many skeptics that say these women went to the wrong tomb, and that's why it was empty. But look at verse 55 again. It says, These women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They knew exactly where this tomb was. Verse 56 says, On that Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So let's just go through the timeline here. Friday, Jesus was killed and buried before, in the tomb before sundown. Saturday, the women rested. And Sunday morning, Jesus was resurrected. Which leads us to the third point of this sermon, the resurrection. Before we even get going, I just want to admit that there's a lot of debate about the the gospel accounts of the resurrection. The four gospel accounts, if you read them, they seem like they contradict each other. And there's questions like how many women went to the tube or how many angels were there or to whom did Jesus appear and when. But listen, this is important. The gospel narratives are different, but they do not contradict each other. I actually believe when you read the four Gospels, these witnesses to what happened, it's exactly what you should expect from eyewitnesses. Right? Imagine if ten of us saw a massive, awesome, awesome event. Each of us would highlight different aspects of it. It's only when you put the testimonies together that you get the bigger picture of exactly what happened. The four Gospel accounts highlight different aspects of the resurrection, and none of them contradict each other. It's only when you put them all together that you see a fuller picture of exactly what happened. And when you put all of the gospel accounts together, you get five truths, five core truths about the resurrection. The first core truth is that Jesus was truly dead. The second core truth that we see and learn from all the gospel accounts is that the resurrection happened on a Sunday morning why we celebrate on Sunday morning. It's why we're here Sunday morning and not Saturday. Third core truth is that angels appeared and explained what happened. A fourth core truth is that the eyewitness of the, uh, of the risen Christ, the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ were women followers of Jesus. And the fifth core truth about the resurrection is the apostles and the rest of the disciples The male disciples refused to believe the testimony of the women. Everything else we find are details that fill in the gaps of these five core truths. So if you would, look at Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, again, this is Sunday, Sunday morning. This is three days after the crucifixion. And Jews counted days a little bit differently than we do. Day one was Friday. Day two was Saturday. And of course, day three was Sunday. Look at verse 1 again. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Again, this is Sunday morning. They came back to finish the burial job that they started Friday. But when they got there, verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The body was gone. Verse 4, while they're perplexed, about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Man, can you just picture this? These 
women disciples, just all the disciples, right? These women get there and they see these two angels and they say, he's not here, but he has risen. Listen, I know I've said this before and I'll probably say it every Easter, every Resurrection Sunday, but we do not worship a dead Savior. Jesus is alive. He's characterized by life. In fact, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In Romans 6, 9, it says this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And Jesus himself says in Revelation 1, 17, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is alive. And look at verse 6 again. He says, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. I mean, it just cracks me up. He he was so clear of what was going to happen. Look at verse 7. He told them that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Jesus is risen. He's risen. I want to look at verse 4 again. Because the women, it says this about them, were perplexed about this. It just, when you go through the Gospels, you would think that they would have expected the resurrection, but no one was expecting the resurrection. Instead, they were confused, wondering, what does this mean? Where did the body go? And I think this is a great question. What does it mean that Jesus was raised from the dead and is alive? Why do we celebrate this day as a church? I think the answer is actually really simple. The resurrection is proof of our salvation. It guarantees our salvation. It guarantees a future reign with a living Christ for all eternity with no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sin, no more sickness, no more temptation, just perfect relationship with God for eternity, perfect joy for eternity. This is why we celebrate today. Christ's resurrection shows us that God has the power to raise the dead, to bring life to the dead. Christ's resurrection shows us that Christ's work on the cross pleased God, that he paid the price for our sins, that God's wrath was satisfied, and therefore we are welcomed and adopted into God's family. It means that Jesus' own words and predictions are trustworthy. It means that we, we have assurance that we will not perish because of our sins. Romans eight eleven says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in other words, if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ and the spirit lives within you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Meaning the resurrection establishes an unshakable foundation to our hope. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection guarantees a future resurrected life for all believers. 
1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And a few verses later, in verse 23, it says this, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Listen, the resurrection means that Jesus has been glorified and exalted. Philippians 2, 8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the the Father. Listen, the resurrection declares that Jesus is the rightful ruler of all creation. Ephesians 1.20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Resurrection means that Jesus, right now, the living Messiah, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, for those that are saved. Romans eight thirty four. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. The resurrection means that everyone, that everyone will be raised from the dead. For the believer, they'll be raised to the resurrection of life, eternal life with God forever. For everyone else, they'll be raised to the resurrection of judgment. John five twenty six says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all, everyone, who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Which leads to a question, where are you this morning? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trust in him because the resurrection is also a warning that Jesus will come back to judge the world. Acts 17.31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen. The resurrection accomplishes so much. It vindicates the gospel. It vindicates our our faith. It vindicates our hope as Christians. It's the greatest event in human history that's ever taken place. And for us Christians, it is our responsibility to take the message of the resurrection to the ends of the earth, to the nations. We celebrate today because we have reason to celebrate. We celebrate a risen Savior, and hope in eternity with him. I just want to end with this. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to be 
honest with you, if you've tuned in, if you're listening, if you're watching with family members that may be believers, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. That's our enemy. That's what the uh, penalty of sin was in the garden. It was death. This is eternal death. This is hell. This is God's wrath. This is darkness forever. But there's good news. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is offering you life this morning as a gift, a free gift given to you, and he has proven to have the power to give it by raising Jesus from the dead. If you are not a believer this morning, repent means turn from your sins and turn to God and pray out to him in your heart. He can hear you. Trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised on the third day. Before we pray, I just want to say, I know this is a unusual Resurrection Sunday, and there is a, a sadness in the sense that we're not together as a church, but there is a joy and happiness in the sense that Jesus is risen, and God is in control. He knew this, this, this Resurrection Sunday would look like this. And I, I, I'm just joy-filled thinking that you are celebrating the Resurrection Sunday for most of you with your family. And I pray that this is a day that, that you love each other as a family and that you guys are joy-filled celebrating the risen Jesus. I want to encourage you. We're going to continue our daily devotions throughout the week. Uh, we miss everyone. This Wednesday night, um, coming up for the live stream, uh, we're going to just talk about where we're at as a church with everything that's going on and what the elder board has been talking about. We have been meeting and uh, discussing um, what this next month is going to look like, and we'd just love to share our conversations uh, with the church. So we would invite you to tune in. And uh, um, let me just pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. God, I thank you for raising your son from the dead, for sending your son in the first place, Lord, to, to live that perfect life, but to die for us, Lord. I thank you that you raised him, Lord, that we have a hope, Lord, in you and what your son has done for us, Lord, a hope of a future, Lord. I am just overjoyed just thinking, Lord, of what you have done for me, God, this gift that you have offered a life that you have brought to life, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we celebrate, that we worship you today, Lord, even as we are in our homes and away from each other, Lord. I thank you for a reminder in this time how much I love our church body and how much I miss everyone. God, we needed to be waking up to that and woken up to the privilege it is, Lord, to get together and worship together. And I thank you for doing that with me. Lord, I pray as we get to normal life again one day here soon, Lord, that we keep that in the forefront of our mind, Lord. That is a joy to be part of a local church, to worship together, to love on each other, to be there for each other. 
to worship together, Lord, to hear the word read, to pray together, to do communion together, to celebrate baptism together, Lord. God, I just pray that we all look forward to that day again, God. Guide us in this time, Lord. But I pray we are just confident. We are confident in your sovereignty. We rest in that sovereignty, knowing that this did not surprise you, Lord. Just like the disciples that were, and the women that were surprised by Jesus' death, Lord, you weren't surprised by that. They should have known better. But what joy it was when you raised Jesus from the dead, Lord. God, I pray today is just a joy-filled day, Lord. No matter what the circumstances we have found ourselves in this weekend, Lord, that we just worship you. Be with us. In your son's name, amen.